0: Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello, and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. And today I'm delighted to welcome two guests from Scotland and the joy of being able to Zoom record these things is that we can actually get guests from all over the world and all over the country and we don't have to force them down to our studio in Bermondsey. So it's a great pleasure to introduce Pete Cairns, who's the co-founder and executive director of Scotland's The Big Picture. And Pete is a photographer, videographer, nature tourism operator and an environmental communicator and a long-term advocate of rewilding. Pete, welcome to the pod and thanks for joining us.
1: Hello there, good afternoon.
0: And my second guest has made an appearance on the pod before, so he's coming back. So welcome back, Patrick Laurie, author of the blog Working for Grouse, and of course of the beautiful native, Life in a Vanishing Landscape, which was shortlisted for the 2020 Wainwright Prize. And if you haven't heard him talking about his wonderful book, then catch the podcast on that. And he tells the story of life on his farm in Galloway, a place forgotten, a vague and half-imagined corner of Scotland that's fallen off the map. Patrick is also involved in a number of conservation projects on upland farms. So Patrick, welcome back to Planet Pod.
2: Thank you. Nice to see you.
0: And I've gathered you here together today to talk about rewilding generally, but perhaps specifically to talk about the campaign that you've just launched, Pete, which is to bring back the links, or at least consult as to how Scotland might feel about bringing back the links. So could you just sketch out for us what it is that you're trying to do as part of this consultation?
1: Yes, well, I suppose suppose the first petty point to make is that it's actually not a campaign, it's a a study. Um, So this is a conversation you'll be aware that's been been rattling around for as many years as I can remember. And although um, there have been several studies um, exploring the ecological feasibility of living with lynx um, in Scotland, this is actually a, a conversation that's not about the biology of an animal, it's more to do with people's perceptions and attitudes and what this year long study sets out to do is to establish the level of support or tolerance for links uh, and therefore the likely success of any future reintroduction. So this is really about people and their opinions, their, their values, their belief systems um, and, and whether those those belief systems encapsulate the possibility of returning a large predator to the Scottish landscape for the first time in well certainly in living memory in several hundred years.
0: I think you're absolutely right to correct me, because that's really key, isn't it? If it isn't a campaign, it's immediately more um, inclusive and neutral. And being a study is you're really seeking to consult a wide range of people about what a Lynx might mean, both to their lives and communities and to the landscape.
1: Yes, I mean, it's no secret that, that Scotland, the big picture, and, and indeed the other partners in the project are supportive of a Lynx reintroduction. But we also recognise that without the support of the Scottish public, then then you know the project will never work even if it was was allowed to go to, go ahead so this is this is a study that will actively seek the the views of a wide range of stakeholders gives every everybody opportunity to influence the outcome and also identifies any barriers that exist and and explores how they might be overcome
0: okay hands up here i have never seen a lynx so just give me a snapshot a picture w- what are they like i mean how big are they what do they look like well, i mean obviously i've seen photographs but you know Bring the lynx alive for us, for those of us who might not know what a lynx is.
1: Very simply, size of a Labrador, weight of a Border Collie. Um, (laughs) That's it, really. They're a a medium to large size cat um, in that sort of size range. What do they eat? Well, that's interesting, actually. The the answer to the question is they eat predominantly um, woodland deer. And, And by woodland deer, in this country, it would be predominantly roe deer, red deer hinds and red deer calves, although not red deer stags. They're just too big. On the continent, they would eat things like chamois and and ibex. Um, So it's predominantly woodland deer. And I say woodland, that's important because this is not a a long range hunter. This is not an animal that's going to track its prey over long distances and and chase it like wolves. They're not not built for sustained um, pursuit. They're not built for quick bursts of speed. They need the, the cover of woodland to sneak up on their prey and they're an ambush hunter. So they need to get within about 10 metres of their prey to make a surprise attack and bring it down quickly. So, you know, there are conversations around large predators or apex predators in the round. We really need to be careful about lumping in bears, wolves, wolverine lynx together. These are very, very different animals.
0: So why would anyone object, Patrick, to having a lynx around the corner in the wood at the bottom of their garden?
2: Um I think probably in realistic and pragmatic terms, um, there's there probably isn't a vast amount to object about. Um, but I think the links has become a bit of a, a a rallying ground and a bit of a battleground for for wider discussions about what we're doing um with um the countryside, what we want, what we expect from the landscape. Um and so I think links are made to seem worse than they are by the people who oppose them and perhaps better than they are are by the people who 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 really promote them. Um, and, and I think it's really difficult to see, sometimes really difficult to kind of really pare back and find out exactly what's what the real what the real story is and the real implication is. I must say though, from my perspective, having worked on a hill on hill farms and dealt with hill farmers and farming for my entire life, um, I'm always left a little bit cold when I speak to sheep farmers who are worried that obviously there may be predation on their sheep, maybe losing sheep. I'm always a little bit concerned when I speak to people who can see no good in lynx, who can see no possible advantage. If you really just think they are just the worst thing in the world, then I just, I just kind of lose. They are absolutely stunning, extraordinary animals, and I've travelled to to Poland and Croatia and uh, parts of Finland and the off chance of seeing them, and still, still never seen one. Absolutely, I, I, I think they're extraordinary, and I couldn't believe the excitement of seeing a lynx in the countryside, and and and. It, if there's no part of you that's a bit excited about these animals, then I find it, yeah, I find the conversation quite difficult to get going from there. So, um, so I think probably it's a, it's lots of shades of grey around this. I think to return to your original question, I think that people have a rational and reasonable concern about the 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 the, the impact of these animals, but that has to be weighed against what are obviously lots and lots of benefits too. So, um, yeah, it's it, it's a it's a tricky one, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the photographs that you see and particularly the photographs that you've shared at, at Scotland, the big picture and the work that David Hetherington has done, I mean, they are stunning to look at, absolutely stunning. So, so if they're not an immediate danger and a threat, where do you expect the opposition or the reluctance would come from, Pete? I mean, why would people not want them? I mean, you know, surely they could only be a benefit if they'd attract perhaps, you know, positive responses or possibly even tourism, ecotourism.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of, evidence-based, scientific, ecological, proven uh, reasons that, that lynx would be a benefit. But but actually, and I think Patrick's alluding to this, I, I believe this is not about lynx. It's not about pine martins. It's not about wolves. It's not about an individual species. It's about what they symbolize. And, and I think what lynx symbolize, to some people, is the tip of the iceberg. If we have lynx this week, it'll be wolves next week, and, and we're, we're all going to hell in a handcart. But I think also there are, there are two words at the, at the nub of this, and the first one is change. Links represent change, and more importantly, they represent change being brought in from the outside and imposed on a rural community that has no voice in that change. So it's a process of disempowerment. People feel that their livelihoods are threatened, they feel their way of life is threatened. So it's not about the links, it's what it, what it means to them almost at a conceptual level. And I think the other word, which is important in any discussion about how the the Scottish countryside looks or is managed or who it serves, uh, and that word is control. And I think we've we've grown used as a species to controlling every square inch of the landscape and rewilding and its associated species and habitats change, the change that rewilding brings with it threatens that control. It's asking people to relinquish some control and hand that control back to nature. And that's something that's fundamentally alien to most land managers. So I think change and control are really the two words at the heart of this, rather than lynx or wolf or rewilding or or whatever other word you want to use.
0: The Scottish relationship with the land and the Scottish farming relationship with the land is quite complicated, isn't it? Because large parts of Scotland are owned by quite a small number of people. And large parts of that land are not farmed actively in the way that Patrick's farming his his land. They're, they're reserved for, you know, for grouse shooting or for, for other moorland related pursuits. So, so so it's quite a complicated relationship that you have in Scotland with the land, isn't it? It's not as perhaps as simple as just, you know, lots of farmers who are used to, you know, having their plot and ploughing it up and planting grain. I mean, it's, it's, it's more complicated and the changes in Scottish land ownership with the rise of community trust and things is another level of change so so is there something there that we should be unpicking about that bigger relationship between Scots and the land that they they live and work
2: well then the first thing that um strikes me about that and I'm always on slightly on 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 edge about this anyway is um being from um Dumfries and Galloway in the far southwest of Scotland um I find it really interesting discussions about Scotland and about wild Scotland and rewilding in Scotland. Um, feel like they're taking place in a slightly different country. Um, and so you cross the border into Scotland and actually most people still think you've got two hours or three hours in the car before you actually reach proper Scotland. Um, and so there's a vast area of Scotland that is south of the central belt, um, but which operates on a very, very different, it's on a very different journey. It's doing very different stuff at the moment. Um, so, um, and, and, and that, to me, is a big concern because I start to feel like um, different parts of Scotland are becoming steadily a bit more sort of um, siloed and a bit more sort of intensif- intensified in terms of what they're doing. At the moment, uh, Dumfries and Galloway produces about half of Scotland's dairy produce. Um, so we have really gone down that particular avenue. We're also turning out a massive amount of commercial softwood timber. Um, and that's only going to be set to increase. And the way that subsidies and support for people who want to do conservation, even that's becoming more specialised now. So that you can't even, the chances are, well, you can't now get certain options that you used to have been able to get through some of the agri-environment schemes. The chances are that's going to be narrowed down, and it's leading us to a situation. Just to add another layer of complexity, Amanda, to your to your to your question, it's leading us to a situation where, in not too distant future, the southwest Scotland will be the timber district, and the southeast of Scotland might be the sheep district. And I'm just a bit concerned then that, say, the cairngorms become the wildlife district. And actually, with that approach, we start to kind of abandon any hope we had of making sure that wildlife is everywhere and making sure that um, we live in a diverse countryside that has a really nice balance of stuff everywhere you go. And and I find it really distressing here, trying to farm, losing wading birds, losing curlews, losing lapwings as we go. My son, when he grows up, won't know curlews and lapwings, and he won't—he won't have them around him. And to him, yeah, he won't necessarily mark that loss. But to me, that's a really defining thing about this area. And and when little small crumbs like that start to fall off the table, they look little, and that's fine. We'll save curlews in Scotland, but we'll save them, say, in Aberdeenshire, but we won't have them here. And and it's the accumulative sum of all these many intensifications where we just start to lose stuff. So. Yeah, so, so why
0: out. not, Patrick? Why, why, why is that happening? Why is it becoming, you know, you're becoming the, the dairy and timber district? And why might you lose your curlews and not and not keep them? Is that habitat loss?
2: Oh, that's a million things, but okay. um, so, no, it, it it is just the more the, the land use has been intensified. In lowland, we've gone to very intensive commercial grassland, and in the uplands we've gone to very intensive commercial forestry. Um and just wildlife generally, Curlew's being an avatar for lots of species, but wildlife is just squeezed in that gap. And so I'm really encouraged when I see some of the um, Scotland big picture stuff going on, and some of the proposals for big wildland stuff going on up north. Like I'm like, oh, but I want, I want, I want bits of that here. Like I want, I want to make sure bits of that happen in amongst what I'm doing here. I don't just want to. I, I love my cows, but I do love other stuff too. Like I want to, <laughs> I want to live in quite a diverse piece of countryside.
0: And what's stopping you? Is that, I mean, you talked about subsidies and, and is, that a, is that a national policy as a result of devolution? Is that a Brexit related policy or is that just sheer the the, the march of economics?
2: Well, well the, uh, the, again, and I have to be careful too that I don't harp on about this. Um, well, inevitably, I do end up harping on about it, but I have to be careful, <laughs> I don't put too much emphasis on it. When you talk earlier about community land ownership and this general move towards breaking up some of the bigger classic land holdings and, and trying to, shatter some of the, the sort of really old-fashioned models of land use and absentee landlords. Um, that's a big highland issue, and that's really interesting to see that unfolding. But at the same time, within five miles of here, there's two or three properties in the last 18 months that have been bought up by a big Austrian investment company, putting it into software timber. So what's being undone in the highlands is almost being redone in the southern uplands. Um, so, we've got this kind of two speed Scotland where the good aspires to get better and the bad is just getting worse. Um, and so, as much as I think links like it has been identified in the past, re- to return to the idea of links, we've got extensive areas of suitable wild land here in Galloway. Um, it's no skin off pretty much anybody's nose to end up having links in some of these places. Um, and yet, at the same time, I can't help but feel the spotlight will go to the highlands because almost because almost that's the wildlife place well that that's where these things would be um and so i look on i suppose i look on with a certain envy and, and i also acknowledge the fact that scotland is probably even more complicated than than it seems return back to one of your points originally about um this kind of imposition of stuff from the outside nobody yet i haven't seen anybody yet really pin this down but there's there's odd politics around um Scottish national identity versus almost the imposition of what feels sometimes like an English middle class vision of what Scotland ought to be um and I, I and i haven't yet seen anybody properly pin that down because rewilding aligns so closely with with a much more liberal approach to land ownership in Scotland and yet in some ways it almost concedes certain political aspects of control to a to a, to the, the the consumer of wild experiences, which is the English um, middle-class potential ecotourist, um, so so there's there's, there's flux and interest around there that I'd love to see that properly unpicked. I don't know, um, Pete, whether that's something that, that'll cross your cross your desk or, or, or be back and forth in your in your thinking.
1: Yeah, I mean, as you said, Amanda, it, it is a terribly complex situation um, in terms of both land ownership, but also perceptions around land ownership who owns the land what species should live there in what numbers to whose benefit you know there are multi multiple perspectives on on all of this stuff just very quickly on the on the land reform thing because i'm asked about this um quite a lot i think there's a general resentment again sweeping generalization there is a resentment amongst some people of big landowners what what is perceived as big wealthy absentee landowners that's a a lazy label because it is true but it's also not not representative across the piece um, but but you know I'm often asked about land reform wouldn't it be better if there was a more socially just um, division of land across Scotland and of course at, a, at an ideological level I would absolutely go along with that. I get the principles of, of land reform absolutely but the reality is that in many cases where land ownership has, has been has been taken on by community groups because those groups have to represent a wide range of stakeholders, very often inertia sets in because it's, it's management by committee and, and nothing ever happens. And I can name you know, several examples where that has been the case. It sets off with huge amount of ambition and energy and gradually that just stalls into a trickle of bureaucracy. The flip side of that, of course, is that the you know, inverter commas wealthy absentee landowner comes along with his big fat wallet, clicks his fingers and stuff happens. So, you know, I live next door, I live next door, he says. I live on a, on a, on a small farm next to a, a massive estate um, owned by a, a, a Danish billionaire called Cordanus Paulsen. And, you know, whether, whether his ownership of, of his chunk of land is, is justified or morally defensible, whatever, it doesn't matter what you think of it, but the net result is that he has made more happen more quickly than a than a community land buyout would, would do in a hundred years. Now, yes, he's got the means and, and but but more than anything else, he's just got the ability to act quickly and make decisions that are implemented immediately. So I get that there's this tension between the ideology of community ownership and the realities of it. And sometimes those two things are quite different.
0: Fascinating. I'm worried I'm going to go further into this debate, so I might back off a bit, but I do want to ask if you can if you how can we help patrick's plea for a more biodiverse rich less intensified part of the landscape so how do we stop that parceling off of bits of scotland being for timber and bits being for 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 ecotourism and you know all the interesting animal stuff happens in the cairngorns and patrick's just denied his 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 wild habitats
1: if you think about it, the, the system, and by the system, the subsidy system, and, and therefore the philosophical system that sits with it, has encouraged us to, to compartmentalise the whole of the British landscape. If you fly over the British landscape, it is divided up by straight lines so that you know grass, grass, species-rich grassland can be measured, regenerating woodland can be measured, and then the subsidy divided out accordingly. We are obsessed with compartmentalising the countryside. And so, again, rewilding comes along and effectively wants to blur those lines and, and make it more, as it were, natural. And, and that, that again, is, is a challenge for many people. It's an alien concept for many people. I think, to answer your question, the, the two things that have come along, I suppose, ironically and unfortunately in equal measure in the, in the last few years, a climate change and biodiversity breakdown, these are two existential crises that we all face and we are all united by. We all share a vision um, that, that moves us in an opposite direction to the one that we're presently heading in. Um, and in many ways, that I hope that will encourage us to put aside what in many cases are really petty politics, point scoring, and recognize that we're all in this together and there's a common goal. If you think about it logically, nobody contests that a healthy, vibrant environment is a good thing. Nobody would disagree with that the only thing we disagree on. What, what does that look like, and how do we get there? So, you know, I, I'm buoyed, but in many ways, ironically, by these these huge, threatening clouds on the horizon, because hopefully it'll focus our attention and get us to to move together towards a positive solution, rather than spending huge amounts of time and energy perpetuating our division. And we're very, very good at that.
0: Yeah, and so presumably your consultation study is one way of raising those bigger issues. So the Linux is, you know, sim, you know, it's a symbol, if you like. It's it's a it's a, it's, a, it's totemic in the sense that it will get people talking, and there'll be divisions, and people will say, oh, they'll eat my sheep, or, you know, they'll frighten the children, or whatever, you know. But but actually, it's a way of saying how do we bottom out some of these trends, and how do we ensure a wilder, more balanced landscape across the whole of scotland and so there'd be nothing to stop you saying yes patrick we can have some links rewilded into your part of, of of galloway so so presuming it's an opportunity to have a bigger conversation is it
1: yes it is um i mean i have to say that that bigger conversation you alluded to is, isn't necessarily most productive when it involves a large predator because, because you know the, the argument is very polarized
0: I, I think and they're not that large you said they're only the size of a labrador, so. <laughs> well,
1: Symbolically, they're, they're large. <laughs> I think, irrespective of the outcome of this study, what 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 it will do is teach us a lot about Scotland's appetite for playing its part in a global biodiversity crisis. So, forget lynx, forget the animal itself. This is a this is a societal issue that affects us all, and this this study will give us a feeling for how willing we are or not. To, to address some of these really big challenges.
0: Yeah, and I th- it, it, would you sense that there's a kind of political will for this? Because, um, you know, presumably to make the changes that you want to make, I don't know, does that have a political ramification? Do you have to have a, a approval from, from the Scottish Parliament to reintroduce an animal of this kind? I mean, is is there a is, do we stray into, into politics in this realm?
1: Very much, very much. And so, so two things on that. I'll, I'll give you the sensible answer second. Um, but there, there is genuinely, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to be to be sort of melodramatic, but there is genuinely a, a growing number of people out there who are fed up with the with the inertia and the bureaucracy of the of the decision making process at a political level, and have voiced quite seriously the possibility of getting a white van in the middle of the night, filling it full of links and letting them go, as happened with beavers on Tayside. <laughs> Whatever you think of it, that was a result of people's frustration. So, so that is a threat, you know, in the background. But, but just to return to the political, and I don't know how political we can be on this on this podcast. But,
0: as political as you like. Okay, so let, let's
1: let's be straight here. The Scottish government at the moment has an agenda for independence. That that's fine. That's their prerogative, of course. But what that does mean is that pretty much every decision at the moment, in the run up to an election, at least, is 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 through the filter of independence. And at the moment, if you're asking me whether they would tolerate a converse, even a conversation around links, I would say, absolutely not. Because against that filter, this really risks losing the rural vote as, as they perceive it. And that's not somewhere they're going to go to. So links at the moment, and in fact, the you know the rural affairs cabinet minister uh, has been quoted as saying, Link, links over my dead body. Um, so, you know, at the moment, the appetite for the res- restoration of a large predator to Scotland is, is, I would say, politically speaking, almost zero. So it's going to require effectively public support to, to make that happen.
0: Patrick, do you think there's, you've rather implied that there is some public support there and that, that you know, landowners, you know, farmers are not just lumped together as a group. You know, you're are as different as, as people all are and that, that actually a lot of farmers wouldn't be completely um, antagonistic to the idea of reintroducing the links.
2: Yeah, no, I so maybe I'm a bit of a a bit of an outlier on this, but at the same time I've been um, brought up on a farm which under current changes to farm payments and under sort of the political future of hill farming in marginal places um is effectively about to vanish. Um, and so into its place i'm 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 probably more um open to alternative um models than 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 many particularly since farmers in scotland are famously old and i despite being 35 i'm about half the age of most of my neighbors um but i think one of the um interesting things that come out of dis- particularly discussions around rewilding but discussions about change in land use more generally is that change often seems to come in the wake of big fireworks and smashing fury, and somebody comes along and and, and puts together a theory which causes huge upset, and there's there's um, sort of conflict afterwards. And and from that, when that sort of settles a bit, there's another wave of people who kind of conciliate and build bridges and and move things in the right direction. So you have these sort of two waves of attack, um, and actually, you can see that even 10 years ago, you look at um, George Monbiot effectively rattling his stick up and down the cage bars and making everybody terribly angry, and then rather sort of quietly backing backing back from the subject a bit. And there's been a lot of really good stuff that then happened through people like George, but specifically not George, who then actually moved a lot of farmers in the right direction, moved a lot of land managers in the right direction. And so I may be a bit uh, conscious of applying the same rules to something like links is we I still feel like we're almost still in the fallout phase and there's still, there's potentially lots of really good conversations to go on behind the scenes, which will move us in that direction. But it has sometimes been a criticism of rewilding that rewilding on does that there are very, very mixed batch of people all working to different agendas and to some one man's rewilding is another man's pile of twigs in the corner of a well-mown lawn so um this idea then that links the idea of links can percolate and then settle and start to and then we can start to talk about it in different once it's no longer a totally new idea we can start to talk about it as something a bit more approachable that's getting jangled periodically by just when it starts to settle someone comes and says right links 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 in the middle of it all and then it it <laughs> It seems discordant. It, it, it doesn't seem like there's a clean narrative around it. So we're not getting that kind of um, progress, that sort of steady settling of progress. It seems almost like, I mean, how inflammatory can uh, the minister be by saying over my dead body? It's it's it, it's sort of trying to specifically chime with a sense of outrage, whereas um, I can't help but feel this is the direction. And it reminds me, even when Pete was, Peter was talking at the start, this um, uh, very good... Um, story by um aldo leopold the escadilla peter you'll know um the the story about escadilla the 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 grizzly bear that lived in the mountain escadilla and uh, they ended up killing him because occasionally in the spring he'd come down and kill a cow um and the irony is that after he was dead it turned out that the world wanted far more grizzly bears than they ever wanted cows Um, and we may be in a similar sort of scenario now where um exporting huge numbers of our low value sheep to europe um maybe actually Um, a lynx is probably a great deal more valuable than some of the sheep that we've been working so hard to look after um so i don't know there's probably that's a a a mixed bundle of of comment on it but i don't know i do think that the movement rewilding itself does sometimes suffer from that kind of slightly discordant sense of never quite allowing that piece there's always a, a like a sense of fury and it's uh, quite right there. The idea of somebody just chance of somebody filling up a, a, a transit van. There always wants to be, it feels like there's always someone who wants to be the good guy who slays the dragon of injustice. So just when you feel like there's about to be progressive conversations going on with farmers, someone then pipes up and says, I'm a rewilder and I hate farming. And then you, <laughs> oh, you're all the way back to the beginning again.
0: But we know that that's not true. We know that a lot of rewilding is actually hugely beneficial for farming and that that, that, that a little bit, whether it's wild margins or reductions in pesticide use or increase in, you know, hedgerows, all of which are under that wide umbrella of rewilding, are enormously beneficial. And Apparently. that they increase y- yields, and they reduce the need for for expensive pesticides. So your value goes up, and so we know that that actually huge amounts of good come out of that. You know, rather dramatic sort of intense cage rattling in the middle, don't we?
2: Absolutely. And I think if we consider links to be the end result, brilliant. Um, but at the same time, from my role doing um, consultancy advisory work with lots of farmers, I'm inching people into doing really really simple stuff. Which is all little bits
0: of of biodiversity,
2: yeah, yeah, but it's the same continuum, it's just it's on the safe end of the uh, and 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 I really can't. It sounds very disloyal, but a lot of my friends and neighbors, um, are very very hardwired to reject even the simplest concept of taking things towards a wilder perspective. And I have a really good series of examples locally of ditch draining and field draining that's going on a huge amount of work going on to try and drain um wet parts of fields to the tune of sort of a quarter of an acre or or half an acre um and i'm screaming to say why are you bothering why not just put a fence around that plant a tree on it do something with it just let it be because it's never going to be your productive part of your silage field um and, and and it it's it's almost these are rational, intelligent, capable people, and they hit a brick wall with it because they've just been tuned in just that there is one way to do this, and this is how we do it. So I'm not surprised then that when we get to the other end of the continuum, we start talking about links. I'm not surprised then there's, there's fireworks. This is a big, big piece of work and a long journey we're on here.
0: Yeah. Maybe we need to deploy economics in here. I mean, you know, the recent report, which looked at the kind of economics of, of review of economics of biodiversity and realizing the real value of, of, of nature and, and that idea that you might let your little wet area stay wet and it becomes a, you know, a carbon sink. And maybe somewhere along the line, you have a economic payment for that carbon sink on your land. So maybe there's a role for a, a you know, a, a bigger economic actor to help people come round to this because I know that you know I'm old enough to remember that farmers got paid to dig the hedgerows up in the 70s and then paid to put them back again in the 80s you know so so maybe there is a role for for, for macroeconomics in helping make that shift alongside the, the sort of information sharing and, and, and education smally work that you're both doing.
2: Um, I don't like to be cynical about it but actually there's a lot of the generation of farmers and land managers now feel to me strangely out of sync with what they're doing, almost because they've, they're almost in a slightly dis- dissociative state, having been through that um, hedgerow removal and hedgerow replacement. I was speaking to somebody recently about peatland and trying to get an idea of uh, the value of um, improving peatland and restoring peatland on his ground. And I said, has it been of any help to you? And I was trying to effectively establish a case study so that I could go to other farmers. And he said, I don't know if it's been a help to me. I don't know if it hasn't been a help to me. To be honest, I don't really care. If it doesn't turn out to be a good thing, they'll pay me to undo it. Um, so you get paid to do it. You get paid to undo it. So yeah, the under- cynicism. <laughs> you basically can't lose. So you'll just, you'll yeah. do this today. We'll do something yeah. else tomorrow. And and to me, re-engaging farmers and re-engaging land managers in a bigger picture, that's the first lesson. And even I, I hadn't reckoned you'd have to go back as far back to basics as that sometimes. So that in there are some really good farmers, and I've pleased to hear earlier Peter saying some big, some of the biggest estates in the Highlands are ace they They're really good, doing fantastic stuff. That's not a universal picture. It's 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 very patchy, and there's good and there's bad, and there's all sorts. There's lots of really really good people out there doing their best, but also we can't ignore the fact that a lot of people out there who 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 would love to, they just they have no idea. They have absolutely no idea where to begin.
0: Maybe they could turn those wet areas into beaver ponds. you've got quite a big job on your hands haven't you and and and, you know just looking at some of the 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 documents that you've shared through your you know social media and through the, the website and things you know there's a lot of kind of myth out there about lynx isn't there and that they eat lots of sheep and all of those things so you've got a lot of work to do around the the animal itself and the process but you've also got a bit of a job to do to address the sorts of things that patrick's been talking about and and are you hopeful that you can get that conversation going properly given how much how many other things people are thinking about at the moment
1: yeah I mean it's tough I'll, I'll make no bones about that you know but but when I get out of bed in the morning same as everybody else there's there's two choices you you do nothing or you do your best that's it that they're the choices so you know if somebody said to me is it is it is it too little too late I, I don't know the answer to that but I think you know th- this this rewilding thing and, and rewinding itself is just a name, it's just a word. We, we, we really shouldn't be frightened of it. But put that aside a moment. You know, this has been a journey going back, um, well, in my experience, 25 odd years. Um, and when I look back to, to the, the immaturity of the conversation, and it was terribly, terribly immature. And I was part of it 25 years ago, compared to the conversations we're having today about carbon offsetting, biodiversity offsetting. You know, Elms you you mentioned, payment for ecosystem services. This would have been an alien concept, even 10 years ago, never mind 25. So I think the conversation has progressed, it's matured, it continues to evolve. And yes, it, it is bewildering, it is frustrating at times, it is bemusing. All the contradictions and inconsistencies that Patrick's alluded to do exist. But equally, it's tremendously exciting. There's there's opportunity here. And I think what rewilding does, and just put aside its toxicity in in the eyes of some people, and I understand where that's come from, don't get me wrong, but what it does for a a certain proportion of the population, predominantly, I have to say, the younger demographic, it represents hope. It represents hope for for a more abundant and diverse range of life in the future. And that's tremendously powerful. So, you know, I I accept fully the criticisms of the word, the concept, the change it brings, the the loss of control it brings. I understand all of that. But I think the flip side of that, against the backdrop of a global biodiversity crisis, this is something that offers hope because it offers benefits to wildlife, to climate, and crucially, this is something that's almost always missed to people as well. So, you know, from where I'm sitting, it it, it really is a no brainer. I, I don't particularly care. What you call it—rewilding, ecological restoration, nature recovery—forget the labelling, but surely it makes sense for all of us to 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 go further on that journey than we are presently.
0: Yeah, and even if it's an untidy pile of sticks at the bottom of the garden, I mean, it has. It, it, you're right; it does represent hope. I think, and I think if the if if the last you know twelve months have taught us anything, it's that we need hope to get us through you know, and we are entering, a, you know, really crucial year for discussions around the climate and the bigger climate framing. And I think that, you know, and obviously all eyes will be on Scotland as host of COP. So, so anything we can do to, to share that message. And I think the actually the general public, so you're rather at your point, Patrick, because the general public really do care about this stuff. People care about what happens in their gardens. They care about what happens in the scruffy bit of land at the end of their street. They want to be, more responsible and be- and closer to nature if they can be, because we spent so much time cooped up in our homes. We've realized that it's there and we've been neglecting it. So I think there probably is hope for this conversation. And, and you know, maybe maybe farmers like you just need more support to be allowed to have that biodiversity on your land and also encourage other farmers to go with you on the journey.
2: Sure. And I think, too, the more people who start to do it, the more um, or quite often one of the obstacles is you can take a really nice case study to a new place and someone will say, oh, that wouldn't work here. Um, bit by bit as um, we get more people doing this kind of stuff it'll become harder to say that because it's going to be um, good stuff right on your doorstep so um, yeah it's all just you everybody's just um, trying to do what they can along these lines Um, and and yeah whatever we've had just now 40 minutes 45 minutes is nothing like enough to get into the kind of detail of, of what we could have ended up talking about so um,
0: well, we can have you back. We'd love to have you back <laughs> <laughs> anytime. <laughs> and Pete, we do want to hear more. So how would people get involved? I mean, it, it, I'm assuming it's a kind of Scottish consultation. So our Sassanacs probably don't get a chance to, to, to contribute other than to share what you're sharing. Um, but how would people, how could people get more involved if they wanted to?
1: Well, well actually, it's not even a, a, a Scottish project. It, it's focused on two specific geographical areas. Those areas have been selected on the basis of previous studies which identify them as being ecologically suitable for lynx. So it's the Cairngorms and and Argyll. Now, there is an argument, of course, to say that lynx wander over huge areas and will find their way into other areas. Of course, they will. But at the moment, we're we're focusing the study on those two main areas. Um, The process right now is that we're talking to particular stakeholder groups and then it will be it will be rolled out to a wider public consultation. What exactly when that happens and exactly what it looks like will depend on our ability to meet in village halls, etc., or or not, as the case may be. So um, I'm afraid that it's not a it's not a sort of an open field, and that you can't just go on a on a survey monkey and fill in a questionnaire and say yes or no. Uh, it's a little bit more considered than that. Um, but by all means, you know, follow us on social media, watch our website, and we will report as we go along. And if we don't do that, we'll certainly be obviously publishing the report at the end of the study in, in 12 months time.
0: Well, I think we'll have you both back um, to, to, to catch up on progress and uh, to find out more. And I think, you know, there is so much more to talk about always in these subjects. So I'm sorry that we've had to draw things to a close so quickly because I know we could have chatted for another hour or so. So huge thank you to you both, to to Pete and to Patrick. And, and if you haven't bought Patrick's beautiful book, go out and buy it now, um, providing you don't buy it on Amazon. Uh, the Hive is the place to get it and catch the podcast as well. Um, thank you so much for joining me today and uh, it's been a, just a great pleasure to have you along.
2: Thank you, Amanda. Yep, That was good.
0: And thanks to you, our listeners. You can catch other episodes of PlanetPod on theplanetpod.com. Um, do follow us on social media and if you felt like it, join us on our Patreon page because we'd love to hear from you and you get some bonus, extra bonus content. You've been listening to The Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. Thank you and goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.